coming up on today's show, no matter how it ends, it probably won't end well for Vladimir Putin. We'll chat with Marcus Kolga, who is newly added to the Russian blacklist for his views. The small mountain town of Canmore is booming. Does that put wildlife in the region at risk? And can the two coexist? And we'll also get an update on scams targeting grandparents. Find out how we can protect yourself. All right, really looking forward to the conversation we are about to have. We're going to be chatting with Marcus Kolga. Marcus um, is, I think, widely regarded, accepted as being one of the leading experts on Russia uh, in North America. He's a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Um, he has been a vocal advocate for human rights uh, in Russia, frequent. An outspoken critic of Vladimir Putin, someone who's issued a lot of warnings about Putin's ambitions, someone who's been involved in this part of the world, um, talking about it and uh, offering expert analysis for a very, very long time. So much so, in fact, that he's been added to a Russian government blacklist as all of this has gone on. This has happened just a few weeks ago or a week ago. Um, and uh, delighted that he has time to join us this morning. Marcus, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Shay. So, uh, yeah, you were recently added to this banned list by Russia. You're no longer welcome in Russia. Um, what was your reaction to hearing that news? Well, look, uh, to be quite honest, I mean, I wasn't entirely surprised. I've spent uh, the past, you know, 15 years uh, advocating and supporting the, the Russian pro-democracy and human rights movement. Um, and I spent a lot of that time advocating for Canadian uh, Magnitsky sanctions. This is a, a law that allows us to target Russian officials and entities who engage in corruption and, and human rights. And I'll tell you, there's a whole lot of those mm -hmm. uh, types of people in Russia right now. And so when I heard the news, um, like I said, I, I, I wasn't entirely shocked, but, um, but it, you know, it brings it all of that Russia's uh, efforts to, and Putin's efforts to intimidate the West had brought it home. Um, this is, you know, this tactic is intended to silence critics abroad it's uh, it's intended to let people like me and others who are named to the list. It's intended to let us know that Putin is watching us, and uh, it's uh, intended to scare us. It's a bully tactic that he's using, and uh, and you know all it's done for me, quite frankly, it's, it hasn't scared me into silence. It's just uh, 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 emboldened me to keep going and 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 to continue that fight against Putin and his authoritarian, thuggish regime. Um. And I'm glad you are, uh, and I'm glad you're joining us today to talk about this. But, but uh, just, uh, you know, that, that attitude, that bullying, that trying to silence, that trying to control the information realm, uh, even yeah. in the Western world, that sort of playbook, page one of what's going on in Russia, right? Just what do you think the situation is in Russia in terms of the information that the Russian people are actually getting and the control that Putin has over it? Well, it's, it's actually quite terrifying. I mean, Vladimir, you wouldn't think that in uh, 2022, a government would be able to completely control the information environment. You know, the, the Internet was supposed to open up the, the information environment, allow us to and, and to prevent um, dictators and authoritarians from ever closing off information spaces for for entire nations. Um, but Vladimir Putin has succeeded in doing this. And what's worse, he's He's managed to convince what seems to be a large number, if not a majority of Russians, that, you know, black is now white, up is now down, and that war is peace. I mean, he's created a completely different alternate reality within Russia because he's hermetically sealed it off from the, the rest of the world. Um, and through that, by controlling that information environment, uh, he's been able to convince his own people that um, what he's doing in Ukraine is right, that the bombing of, you know, civilian infrastructure that we've seen over the past 
four or five weeks, the, the bombing of schools, of hospitals, that it's actually the Ukrainians doing them that themselves. And the massacre that we're seeing in, in uh, Bucha, the, the images that we're seeing there, um, what Russian media right now and, and the government is doing is, is claiming that this is all a setup, that it's the West that has created these images, it's all fake, uh, and that Vladimir Putin and, and his army are on the righteous path to denazifying Ukraine, which is an absurd narrative. Um, it's, it's terrifying. And, uh, and unfortunately, uh, through this information operation against his own people, he's managed to convince uh, his uh, majority of his own people that he is doing the right thing. So um, unfortunately, he's winning the information war at home. So it works. I mean, we know I mean, elections don't mean anything really in Russia. He wins overwhelmingly every time they go to the polls. Uh, we hear about, you know, fairly good approval ratings. I think they've slipped a bit recently. But um, how how do you think the, the average Russian feels about Vladimir Putin? Does he control the environmental or the information that well that he is seen in a favorable light? Well, if we're to believe the polling numbers, um, that we're seeing in Russia right now, there are, there are claims that he has around 80% support. Now, take this with a grain of salt, because the Russian government controls all information. So yeah. um, this could be a hyperinflated number. Um, the fact of the matter is that anyone who would otherwise speak out against the war, who would be critical of it, um, you know, we saw that there were thousands of Russians who took to the streets in the early days of the war to protest against it. They were violently repressed, and there was a new law that was uh, instituted in, in Russia that made uh, any mention of the word war in the context of Ukraine, just uttering that word, exposed uh, individuals to the risk of being uh, arrested and charged and potentially uh, facing 15 years in prison, 15 years just for saying the word war. So, um, you know, in, in addition to the information war, Vladimir Putin has, through his repression, has has probably silenced uh, most of the critics that would otherwise speak out against the war, and of course the independent media, uh, what remained of it, mm-hmm. uh, has all been completely shut down. So there is, there's really no way for anyone to stand up and, and speak out against uh, Vladimir Putin right now inside of Russia. So I often hear, you know, from the audience saying, well, it's going to take the people of Russia rising up and overthrowing Putin to end this. Um, Okay, so it doesn't sound like that's all that likely. What about the pressure that's being exerted on the oligarchs and the people with money, his inner circle? I know that's the intent there, to try and pressure them to do something to get Putin to change what he's doing or remove him. Do you think that might be more effective? Well, just going back to your initial point, I mean, the Russian people will eventually be fed up with what uh, the way that Vladimir Putin is behaving. Um, the sanctions aren't an overnight solution. Uh, they are a long-term solution that will take time to have an effect. So the, the longer the Russian people feel the effects of these sanctions, um, the, more, uh, you know, the more outspoken they might become. And, and eventually they will want to see a, a change in leadership. But further to your point about oligarchs, they too should be feeling the pressure. That's yeah. the, the theory behind sanctions is to strangle them economically, cut off their wealth, cut off their access to their wealth and their, their ability to travel. And the, the, it, theoretically, the, the, the hope is that they will eventually um, be motivated by, by that to uh, work together to change the direction that the government is taking. In this case, you know, um, there's, I think everyone in the Western world right now is hoping that they will band together and remove Vladimir Putin from office. Now, whether that'll happen or not, whether they have the courage to do that, 
who knows? You know, so many of them you've seen, we've seen images of, of these super yachts. They've jumped on yeah. their yachts in Turkey and taken off to God knows where. Um, so they're fleeing Russia right now. The, the rats are, are fleeing the sinking ship, as it were. Um, and they're trying to avoid any sort of uh, uh, accountability or repercussions for what's happening. But, uh, you know, the hope would be that the oligarchs will get together, maybe put together their money and uh, approach um, the, the, intel- the security services who keep Vladimir Putin in power. Maybe they'll, they'll inspire the, the knives to eventually come out for, for Putin to end uh, this nightmare that he's putting us all through. Hey, Marcus, do you have a minute, uh, a few more minutes to hang on and take a quick break and come back and continue? Yeah. Okay, we're chatting with Marcus Kolga, who's a leading expert on Russia and a senior fellow at the McDonald-Laurier Institute. We'll take a quick break and be back with more right after this. We're chatting with Marcus Kolga, who's a leading expert on Russia and a senior fellow at the McDonald-Laurier Institute. He's also on the uh, new Russian government blacklist, people no longer welcome in that country. And that's because he's been an outspoken critic of Vladimir Putin and some of the things in Russia. Marcus, we were just talking about if the people or the oligarchs might be enough to rise up and, and remove Putin. I'm wondering, what about the military? We keep hearing that some of the soldiers who ended up in Ukraine thought they were on an exercise, had no idea what was going on, felt duped. Is there a possibility that the troops or the leaders within the Russian military may be a way to say, we're not doing this anymore. Is that a possibility? Yeah, it's, uh, it is a possibility, Shay, and it's, uh, it's a bit of a wild card. Um, we know that Vladimir Putin has actually arrested a number of, of his generals um, and uh, put them at least, at w- last we heard, they were under house arrest. Things could be worse now. Um, but he is blaming his own army uh, for his the utter failure and disaster that uh, his invasion has been, um, you know whether they uh, are get fed up and decide to make a change. That's that's a that's a big question. Um, and you bring up the the fact that uh, his own troops, uh, the recruits uh, who are being forced onto the front lines in in uh, in Ukraine. Um, you know, we've heard that morale has been extremely low amongst these these troops. They were they weren't told that they were going into Ukraine for an invasion, and of course, Vladimir Putin told his own people that uh, this was a special forces operation, yeah. a special limited operation to denazify Ukraine. Um, but we all know that he's engaged in this widespread warfare. So, um, you know, these kids, you know, nineteen twenty year old conscripts. Um, they were told that they were just going, as you mentioned, into uh, to to undertake military exercises on uh, on Russia's uh, western border with with Ukraine. But instead, they're in this invasion situation. They've been told to essentially shoot civilians, men, women, and children, um, fire on on civilian infrastructure with artillery and such. And so, this is not really what they signed up for. There's there's also the problem, the logistical problem. Um, you know, food isn't getting to these soldiers. Uh, the conditions that they're in are very poor. They're, uh, these, we know that these Russian soldiers are going around looting uh, various different uh, areas where they are, where, where they've uh, on the front lines in, in Ukraine. Uh, and so all of this has led them to rise up in many occasions. Uh, just two weeks ago, there, was a, 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 there were several reports about uh, a group, uh, an army group north of of Kiev that had turned on the colonel, their commanding colonel. They had taken him, they had abducted him, uh, pinned him to the ground and took a tank and, and drove right over this colonel. And so we're hearing rep- these sorts of reports. And, uh, you know, it's entirely possible that, uh, I mean, things will not be getting better for Vladimir Putin over the next few weeks. Um, is it possible that the army will turn on him? 
uh, entirely possible. We saw that during the the uh, the communist re- revolution in, in 1917. It was the same, a very similar situation. So, is it possible? Yes, I, I certainly wouldn't rule it out. Um, so, Marcus, you and I are talking about various ways that Vladimir Putin could be removed or forced out, and that would be a way to resolve this. Is there any other way? Is there a way that Putin? remains in charge and uh, in control of Russia and somehow this conflict ends or does he need to be removed for this to be resolved look uh, it's it's possible that the fighting will stop because Vladimir Putin cannot keep uh, keep this war machine going it is costing him dearly um, he doesn't have the resources to do it uh, his economy is being hit by these sanctions so he's he's going to have to stop at some point. Now, what happens after that is the big question. Um, let's not forget that Vladimir Putin just last summer changed his country's constitution uh, to allow him to remain in power until 2036. And there's no indication that even if he gets that far, that he'll leave office then. Um, if we look at the, the past 22 years that he's been in power, he has been engaging in a cycle of conflict with various different countries. Invasion, the invasion of Georgia, the efforts to destabilize Estonia, the invasion against Crimea. And let's not forget the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Right. He's also attacking our democracy. There's no reason to believe that any of this will stop. Um, and so the question, be, you know, what, how will this end? It will only end with him being removed from power. How we do that is, is a big question. Um, you know, there are several things that we can do, you know, for instance, empowering Russian civil society, um, making sure that good information gets into Russia. Um, those are things that we can do. But like I said, the only way that this is really going to end all of this is with his removal from power. What does that look like in Russia? If Putin is removed and, you know, when that happens, what is the the system? What's in place in Russia to sort of carry on? I mean, you're talking about a nuclear superpower. I mean, all these kinds of discussions. Yeah. And, you know, when you're talking about regime changes and things like that, what do you think it would look like post-Putin in Russia? Well, it's depending on how all this plays out, of course, and, and how that change occurs. Um, you know, there is right now, Russia is being ruled by the former KGB. That is, their representative is Vladimir Putin. Everybody that is around Vladimir Putin is part of that security apparatus. So should, you know, Vladimir Putin suddenly uh, have to step back or perhaps, you know, something else happens to him where he is no longer able to rule the country, there will be other members of the security apparatus that will probably step in and take over for the time being. How long that would last, we don't know. Uh, but but th- that system sort of is in place. There's no successor that's being chosen but there are individuals who are re- ready to, to, to step in. Um, you know, my old friend Boris Nemtsov, who was the opposition leader, and he was really running against Vladimir Putin in 2000 when Vladimir Putin was selected by, by Yeltsin to succeed him. Um, Boris Nemtsov used to always tell me that, um, you know, the only way that Russia will become democratic and that there will be a change is when the, the people rise up. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I believe that Boris uh, was, was probably right in that. And, uh, and I think that the only way that we'll see a European-facing Russia, one that will want to work and respect its work with and respect its uh, with its neighbors, and uh, and uh, you know uh, promote democratic values within Russia, it's only going to come from from the grassroots. It's going to come through uh, a popular, you know, probably an uprising of some sorts, because 
um, let's face it, uh, you know, the elections that do happen in Russia are are not real. They they are the outcomes are predetermined. So any democratic changes is, is impossible and has been for a number of decades. So uh, popular uh, uprising, uh, a, a revolution, if you were, uh, by the people is the only way that we're going to see a real a substantial change in Russia uh, in the future. Um, one more, and I'll let you go, Marcus. I really appreciate your time. Um, what's your expectation for the region, for Crimea, for Donbass, for the, for those areas? What happens? Do they go back to Ukraine? Does Russia maintain you know control of those areas? What's your expectation there? Well, I think it depends on what we in the West do. If we decide to back up uh, Ukraine to help it not just stop this war. Freezing this this conflict is not going to help anyone. We need to defeat Vladimir Putin, and that means pushing him out of Ukraine and securing Ukraine's borders. We have that opportunity right now. We can send weapons. Canada has has yet to match up to our NATO allies. Countries like Estonia, a tiny little country with a population of the size of Edmonton, has contributed nearly $300 billion in lethal defence uh, aid to Ukraine. We've not sent much more than 40 million. We have a lot more work to do. If we commit to sending the missiles uh, that are needed to take out the armor, to take out the aircraft, um, and the, the ships at sea who are firing uh, that are firing firing cruise missiles into Ukraine, if we if we help them defend their country, I think that we can change the tide and and really uh, secure Ukraine and and Europe. Uh, for for years to come. But the moment is now. We need to make that decision now. We can't wait for a week or two. We need to do it now. And if we do that, I think we'll be in we'll be in much better shape. So you think militarily this war can be won? I know a lot of people think, I mean, it's just a matter of time with the size and strength of the Russian army, although the expectation hasn't been met in a lot of ways. But you think militarily Ukraine can hang on? I think Ukraine can absolutely hang on. Given the proper weapons, it was just announced today that the, the Czechs have sent in tanks. If we, if, we, if we supply them with the proper tools, the Ukrainians can hold on. They've demonstrated that they could hold on to Kiev. They pushed back the Russian army. They've humiliated Putin at this point. They can continue. They have, uh, they've got the steam. They've, they've, they've got the momentum. Um, let's help. If we can help them do this, if we can help them continue, I think that they can actually push Russia out of Donbass uh, and maybe even Crimea. Okay, I know I said I'd let you go, but I'm getting a bunch of texts, and uh, it's something that always comes up. What about assassinating Putin? Is that a possibility? Like you say, the, you know, the security structure is still in place, so it might not change that much. But is that something that's been kicked around in the West? Is that something that's even on the table? Well, I don't think that's uh, really being kicked around or, or, you know, it's not being seriously considered by anyone in the West. But I, I suspect that there are probably some oligarchs uh, right now uh, and maybe people within the security apparatus in Russia who are seriously considering that. Um, that I wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me at all. Interesting. OK, Marcus, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Sure thing. Anytime, Shay. Thank you. That is Marcus Kolga. Uh, Marcus is a founder of disinfowatch.org. He's a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Um, and as we said, he is widely considered one of the leading experts on Russia and that region has been for a very, very long time. And, and, and the work that he has done in this area is is really quite remarkable. He's been involved for a very long time. He's been um given all kinds of awards from uh, different countries in Europe. He's been heavily involved in this. And because of all of his work and all of his involvement and all of his advocacy for human rights and pointing out the threat that Vladimir Putin uh, poses to the West, he is now on that blacklist 
that Russia has put out saying uh, these people are no longer allowed in Russia. It, it was all in response to the sanctions and uh, the steps that the West was taking against Russia. So appreciate that he had time to join us today. Get this, Canmore was one of Canada's fastest growing communities over the past four years, almost 15% growth. So it continues to become bigger. Is it becoming better? And, you know, if you think about it, right outside of the gates of Banff National Park, uh, a protected area, and it's a very important area for wildlife in our province. So how do you balance those two, this rapid development and growth with the importance of the environment in the same area. Can it be done? We're going to have a chat now with uh, Gareth Thompson. Gareth is the executive director of the Biosphere Institute of the Bow Valley. Gareth, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. Well, you're certainly welcome. Nice to be here. You know, it, it's such a beautiful part of the province, extremely popular. So on, on top of the residents and the increase in residents and developments, it's an increasing spot for tourism, of course. So many people flock to the region. All of it, bottom line, means a whole lot more people in the Bow Valley year over year over year. So what does that mean? What kind of an impact are you seeing on the area so far? Well, you know, um, uh, for years now, uh, we've been proud of... Uh, our reputation um, internationally, actually, as kind of the gold standard when it comes to um, figuring out this uh, calculus around uh, human-wildlife coexistence. And uh, 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 I think there's a very, um, although that's a great thing to be able to boast, and, and lots of associations have held their meetings here to kind of study our methods, as it were, um, you know, we just, to keep, to keep that gold standard, we're going to need to do certain things in the face of uh, the kind of the twin challenges of increased development and increased recreation. Um, now, we know why there's so many people down there. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful and people love to be in the mountains and it's a glorious little town. Um, what about its importance for wildlife? Is, it, is, it, is there something about it that makes it more important than another region, for example? What, what does it mean to wildlife, that area of the province? Oh, well, that's a, that's a great question. So humans uh, love the Bow Valley for the same reason that wild animals like to spend time in the Bow Valley. You know, it's a valley bottom. It's warm. It's flat. Uh, you can move around readily, whether you're, you're a human being on a mountain bike or whether you're a, um, an adolescent grizzly bear trying to make its way in the world and travel from Kananaskis country to, the, to Banff National Park through this valley. And it's just imperative that we uh, keep the... Keep, Keep that travel uh, an option for the humans, of course, which we won't have any cha- any cha- challenge there. But it's a, it's a bigger challenge um, to keep it uh, available for the wildlife. You know, you make a really good point. Like we talk about development and new housing and things like that, and that's one part of it. But with all the increased activity in the area, I imagine it spreads far beyond what we would call the town, right? With people using the area for recreation, as you say, mountain biking, hiking, whatever the case may be. So you've probably got an impact that goes far beyond quote unquote town limits, right? Well, that's right. So look, um, uh, we have uh, the province of Alberta in uh, 2017, kind of connected with the death of a really popular grizzly bear, Bear 148, which some people listening might know about. We lost that bear. 
Um, and uh, the province of Alberta created this cool thing called the Roundtable on Human-Wildlife Coexistence. came out with recommendations in 2018, and, and we're very hopeful um, that provinces just now, just recently, reconvened that Roundtable. We saluted for that. And uh, uh, those guidelines, those 2018 guidelines, do need to be re- revisited. Recreation, this huge pressure, this huge new pressure, called recreation needs to be considered and we need to go to go to work on implementing those recommendations. Kananaskis country, just to our south, um, uh, received 5.3 million visitors last year, um, which is up, uh, it's a, that's doubled in, uh, wow. in just a few years. And, uh, and that's tremendous pressure. And, you know, look, if I can just tell a little story. So I'm a mountain biker. I'm a trail runner. I love being out there like so many other people. Yeah. And, uh, and just recently, and I think this, this story illustrates kind of, it captures what we're talking about. So I was on a run with my dog, dog on a leash, had bear spray. I was shouting, yo, bear, as we, as we do, just to try and, you know, avoid that, um, uh, you know, having a, uh, taking a, a wild animal by surprise, which yeah. we try not to do, right? And so running along the trail, and I noticed right just, to, just beside the trail, this huge elk, this huge cow elk lying on its back, looked like it was still alive were it not for the kind of the gory ribs sticking into the sky. And I could realize, I realized, and I, my dog was sniffing around like crazy, uh, this, and we could see where this elk had been killed. And uh, by something very large, very powerful, I was like, oh my gosh, Here's hoping it's not a grizzly bear because they will defend their kill and that won't go well for us. I looked up there walking towards me was a huge mountain lion. First, first wow. mountain lion or cougar. First cougar I'd ever seen. Gut was distended with meat walking towards me. And then it would look off to its left. I'm like, okay, so how come I'm not under attack by this <laughs> giant killer feline? And then so I looked to where it was looking and watching the cougar was a tall white long-legged wolf, the first wolf I'd ever seen. And both the cougar, the cougar had killed the elk. The wolf wanted to get at the, the elk uh, carcass. I was sitting right on top of the uh, elk carcass, having some personal security issues, and I left, so I left the area, and I left them to it. And um, the thing, that was in the Bow Valley. And I, the, here's, I want to make two points. One is that there probably isn't anyone listening who wouldn't love to have that kind of experience or see a cougar or sure. a wolf in the wild. And um, the other point I would make is that unless we, unless we, 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 uh, we look after this ecosystem with functioning wildlife corridors that make sense, with kind of um, a respectful recreational, recreationalist to stay away from, um, kind of closed areas or uh, wildlife corridors. Or, um, so unless we, we're going to kill the, you know, the, the prospect, the real, very real possibility is killing the goose that laid the golden egg. When it comes to um, keeping the wild in 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 this wild valley, and uh, we really have to be, you know, we have to. It, it will require more work and uh, more focus um, if we're going to get this right. Will it get to a point, Gareth? And I assume it has to, where development will have to be halted. I know there's been some projects where the residents of Canmore have banded together and said, no, we don't want to see this development. We want to protect the area. Does it get to a point where development just isn't an option? I mean, it's gone as far as it can in order to have that peaceful coexistence you're talking about? Well, um, that depends on who you talk to. But uh, I just saw an article by uh, in the Global Mail on the weekend, and the mayor of Kenmore, it basically says there's only, well, in fact, I've got it right here. There, quote, there is only a limited amount of developable land in Canmore, and with that comes an effective limitation on the number of people that can actually live here. And I, and I agree with that, and I believe in that. You know, I was, um, 
uh, I once served on Camel Town Council and was meeting with the, the, a colleague, uh, uh, with the MD of Bighorn, our, our local uh, municipality, and I was, I was, uh, and she was a wonderful. He was a little old lady called Lorraine Fraser. Love her to bits, and, and but she was very much, um, she, uh, if you will, she was a little old school. And uh, or she had, you know, the same sort of attitudes that lots and lots of people still have in Alberta and in the Bow Valley. She was like, you know, she, she looked at me at one point and said, Gareth, where do you live? And sensing a trap but not knowing how to dodge it, <laughs> I, I said, I said, well, well, Lorraine, I live down in the Larch area of, of Canmore. And, uh, and she said that she then she pounced on me and said, aha, well, I used to ride my my horse down there. And now, Gareth, you tell me that you've moved here and that you claim that place to, to live, but you tell me that we have to restrict um, other future residents that live here. And she, she kind of had me, except for I had a card up my sleeve, and I, and I played that card. I said, Lorraine, should we just give ourselves permission to develop this valley until there's houses all over the valley bottom and climbing up as high as we yeah. can go on the slopes of the of the mountains, because you know what? Uh, with that population, air quality would go down, our quality of life would go down, and we would have destroyed the very thing that attracted us here in the first place. And ain't nobody wants that. So yes, we do need limits. We do need to restrict our activities, and we do need to kind of f- come up with that balance that you talked about at the yeah. beginning. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree 100 percent, Gareth. Uh, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. You're certainly welcome. That is Gareth Thompson, who is the executive director of the Biosphere Institute of the Bow Valley. And I think he, you know, that's the perfect way to put a button on this. You talk about why. Why is it so popular? Why are so many people, you know, spending time in that area and buying property in that area? Well, it's because it's in the mountains, you know, and that mountain environment. And at some point that scale will tip if you continue with the development to the point where it loses that wilderness feel, then it's it's lost, as he said. You know, it's the goose that lays the golden egg. Last week, we had a caller uh, just called us out of the blue to tell us that his mother... I believe it was his mother, maybe his mother-in-law, but I think it was his mom, uh, was taken for $8,000 in cash by someone running the so-called grandchild scam. Uh, and as he was telling us the story about what happened, um, we started to get texts and calls from a bunch of other people around the province, a lot from the Calgary area, maybe they're focused on there right now, saying the same thing had happened to them or their parents or their friends or their neighbors. It's been happening a lot, clearly. So... Uh, we decided to reach out to the authorities, get some insight on what's going on, and is there anything that we can do to try and protect ourselves from all of this? So we are thrilled that Detective Dave Stewart from the Calgary Police Service has agreed to join us this morning. Uh, Detective, thank you for your time. We appreciate you joining us. Oh, good morning, Shay. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Um, you know, I mean, I don't think any of us are surprised that there's currently a scam being operated. I'm sure they're ongoing all the time. But this one, this grandchild scam, seems to be the one that most of our listeners had run up against recently. Are, are you seeing that one a lot right now? Yeah, we sure are. Since December of last year, uh, they've been coming in quite frequently, uh, reported to the Calgary Police Service. And then through these investigations, we've been learning that they're uh, through all over Alberta. And yeah. uh, some of them are in Ontario as well. And, and the way that it works is basically they just call you up and, and they they you know they pretend to be the grandchild of whoever they've managed to get a hold of on the phone and say that they're in trouble and they need money to get out of it? Is it that simple? 
Yeah, it's, well, it seems like it's almost a scripted scam, right? Um, and these guys are very convincing by the time you factor in uh, COVID restrictions. And, uh, you know, a lot of these grandparents haven't seen their their, their loved ones in, in a few years, right? Um, so, yeah, uh, they'll, they'll call up posing as a, as a grandchild, say they're in trouble, say they've been arrested by the police and they need some bail money. So these scammers... scammers Sorry, these scammers are really leveraging the, you know, these grandparents want to help. Um, yeah, want, they're wanting to help and leveraging the trust that they have with the with the police. Like you say, it sounds like it's scripted, and I, I I think you're right. It sounds like there's a formula because when we were talking to people. Um, Last week, like the one uh, gentleman whose um, mother or mother-in-law was taken for $8,000, when she went to the bank, uh, you know, the bank will ask a senior citizen why you need large amounts of cash. And she was told to tell the bank person, well, I'm doing home renovations. And we had other people calling and saying, yeah, I'm getting something done in the yard or something like that. So they counsel their victims to make sure that they get through the bank system, right? Correct. And yeah, that's definitely one of these red flags. Obviously, well, police will, are never going to tell anybody that they can't contact their loved one, right? Yeah. Uh, so often, yeah, these scammers will tell the seniors that, you know, there's a gag order in place. Uh, I can tell you that there's no such order uh, under the Canadian Criminal Code, uh, meaning that they can't talk to, to anyone about the arrest. Um, like, there is no such order prohibiting a loved one from talking about being arrested. Yeah, because that was another thing that he said is even after this had happened and the person had left with the cash, he asked what happened. And she said, I can't tell you. I handled it. Don't worry about it. But I can't tell you. So um, they obviously have a, a number of things in place to make sure. Now, how do they find the is it just calling random numbers until they hit upon a grandma or a grandpa or do they do some pre-work? Is there any way to protect ourselves? Um, I don't entirely know uh, exactly how they're how they're targeting their victims, how they're selecting them. Um, there's a few theories out there, but that would that would just be, uh, I don't have anything to back it up at this point. So um, I'm not exactly sure how they're targeting their... So is there anything, I mean, I imagine if, if for the people who get victimized, it's more the their loved ones putting in things to try and, and protect them from uh, falling victim to this. Do you have any suggestions, any tips that we can do if we're worried about our parents falling victim to some of these scammers? Yeah, for sure. So communication is going to be huge. Um, I would certainly uh, encourage uh, the seniors to talk amongst themselves, for sure, and talk about these frauds and make themselves uh, aware of it and then talk about it uh, with their loved ones. And uh, if you have elderly parents, uh, certainly bring it up with them and come up with some sort of system because, like you said earlier, these guys, these grandparents are trying to help, right? right? And they're trying to follow instructions. So uh, just to come up, just to let them know that you know, there is no such thing as a gag order, and the police are never going to ask you for tens of thousands of dollars uh, to bail out a loved one. And just come, maybe come up with, like, a, a backstop system where, you know, I've been asked by the police or the Canada Revenue Agency or a lawyer or somebody in authority for money, um, and just talk to the loved one first, talk to your son or daughter first before sending that money off. One of the things that people brought up, and I don't know if this is a good idea or not, because the person that we spoke to, um, the person actually went to their mother's house to, to pick up the cash, and people were saying, what about getting a doorbell camera installed at your parents' place? And at least that way you would know if people are coming and going and who's coming and going. Is that a good idea? Um, the doorbell camera footage has actually been very beneficial in some investigations so far. Okay. Helping identify these these couriers, because quite often the uh, the scammers, they'll, they'll 
tell the victims that they're sending a court-appointed courier to come and collect the cash. Um, and again, that's something that just doesn't happen. Uh, if bail is going to be paid uh, for somebody that's in, in custody, it's always done at the courthouse. Yeah. Uh, not in cash. Uh, not in cash and not certainly not by way of a courier. Are there other scams going on, Detective, just before I let you go, that you're aware of right now that people are seeing uh, pop up more and more often? Um, well, this is the main one, other than you know, the typical Canada Revenue Agencies yeah. uh, scams and stuff like that. But just one more thing. I guess if anybody's uh, concerned that they think that they may be the victim of a scam, because uh, it is so hard to tell these days uh, over the phone, they can always get the police case file number, uh, get the police officer's name, badge number, and so on, uh, and then say, okay, I'll call back the, the original agency. If you say that you're from the Calgary Police Service, then I'll, I'll phone, you know, the Calgary Police Service common number, like the non-emergency number, 266-1234, uh, or the Edmonton number, or so on, right? Yeah, And just yeah. to confirm, through the case number, um, and through the police officer, that it is, in fact, an ongoing investigation. All right, Detective, some good advice, and uh, hopefully we helped... Uh prevent a couple more victims here. Thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you. You bet. That's right. Detective Dave Stewart with the Calgary Police Service working on some of these files, and yeah, they just make you so mad. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.